and welcome to episode number three of the Michael's Record Collection podcast. My name is Michael Citro, and uh, I'm happy to bring you this podcast where I speak to multi-instrumentalist Robert Berry. Uh, Robert Berry's an interesting guy, good musician. He has worked with some of the real legends in music, including Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer from ELP. In fact, those three gentlemen uh, put together a band called Three back in the 80s, released a very a pretty well-known album called To the Power of Three, and um, you know, sort of uh, coming in at the tail end of, of when prog bands were starting to release more accessible records. Uh, and things didn't quite work out for them, uh, but years later, Robert and Keith Emerson got back together. They started working on another album. Uh, they used the nickname 3.2 instead of 3 because Carl Palmer wasn't going to be a part of that. But sadly, Keith Emerson took his own life uh, during the middle of the time when they were uh, writing and, and putting together the record. So uh, Robert Berry was you know, left by himself to, to pick up the pieces and soldier on and, and try to uh, put that release out. It came out in 2018, again under the 3.2 name, and the album was called The Rules Have Changed. And, you know, there was still a song left over and some, some ideas uh, from Keith that Robert felt needed to be out there. And so he put together a third 3.2 album called Third Impression. It came out in February. This interview with Robert took place in late January, and uh, I can't wait to bring it to you. He talks a lot about Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer, his time with them, and and how he met uh, Greg Kinn, and he's been playing with Greg, and uh, just a lot of great uh, stories, and also very interesting uh, stories about how he put together these last two albums especially. And um, anyway, I uh, appreciate you listening. Um, right, at, right before I get you that interview, I want to remind you, you can go to substack.com and type in Michael's Record Collection and uh, my newsletter will pop up. You can read through past issues. You can sign up to get it in your email for free every week. Uh, also, you can check out my YouTube channel. So go to YouTube, again, Michael's Record Collection there. Uh, and at Michael's Record Collection on Instagram and at Mike's Records on Twitter. So these are all the places you can find me. Be sure to uh, to like, follow, whatever. Um, and uh, here it is, Robert Berry. Hope you enjoy it. All right, welcome to Michael's Record Collection. And uh, today we're talking with Robert Berry about the forthcoming release from 3.2 called Third Impression. Um, Robert, thanks for your time today. Hey, Michael, I appreciate you taking the time for me. You- you said this is your YouTube channel. I'm thinking back to the first three album. There was no YouTube, really no internet. It's 1988, it's, and that's not that long ago. I'm going, wow, things have really changed, right? It feels like to to those of us who have been around a while, it feels like 1988 just happened, but it's it's really been a long time since that. Yeah, that yeah 35 years, well, yeah, 30 something years. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I want to start by asking you, you know, you come out with some new songs. You decided to release a 3.2 album. Why, why a 3.2 album? Why now? Why was the time right to to uh, to revisit this particular project? You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, they put out a three live in Boston in 2015, 2016. So somewhere, Keith had sort of left three behind in 1989. He said, "I want to do any more. I'm getting criticized too much." When this live in Boston came out, he called me immediately and he was so excited. He goes, wow, we were such a good band. I just had no idea. People had sent him letters complaining about how can you be playing songs and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it affected 
he didn't like the criticism. Uh, so he broke up the band. Then he's hearing how good it was, which I always thought, of course, but I was the new guy. Of course, I'm going to think he's going to go, oh, my God, how did I wind up playing with these guys? Right. Right. And he was so excited 27 years later that I just simply said, Keith, would you consider doing another one? Now, Frontiers Records had been bugging me for 10 years to do one. I said, oh, Keith, I wouldn't even ask him about it. He really, because you know, we've done a lot of things between that 27 years of TV commercial. He played in some albums for me, Tempest and something. We stayed friends, you know, stayed in contact, but um, I never asked him about three. I just knew he wanted to leave behind. All of a sudden, there he is all excited. And he goes, uh, I said, what do you think about doing a follow-up? He goes, maybe, meaning what company, how much money, right? Right. We all needed to make a living. So I called Frontiers right away. I said, hey, look, I, I, I feel something on the hook, on the fishing line, if I can get a good budget. And what was funny about that is I called Keith back and said, I got us this much money. He goes, who has that kind of money? I said, they want you, Keith. They want Keith Emerson on the label. And I said, artistic freedom. He goes, wow, that's fantastic. He said, okay, let's do it. So when I called the company back, I asked him for another five grand. And I said, well, Keith was good about it but if i just get another five grand for him right <laughs> so <laughs> i was negotiating he was excited right. we did the last album had it two-thirds of the way done this was called the rules have changed you know um two years ago now um in the middle of it of course he committed suicide we lost him um i was his sort of happy place because he had good money coming in he was working on an album music you know he's all about the music right i actually had no idea even though i'd seen him a month earlier in, in Los Angeles, how tormented he was about other things in his life, you know, home life, impending health things. Lost him, wasn't gonna finish the album. A year later, his son Aaron said, well, you know, yeah, you got a lot of material, the record company, come on, you gotta do it. So I said, look, I'm gonna finish it. And if you guys think it's good enough, we'll put it out. So I finished it, they loved it, it came out, it did just fantastic. I, I'm still amazed at how well it did. So the record company says, you should do a follow-up. We, we do put out a lot of albums. This album did really well. And I said, you know, I only have one song I couldn't use because it's such a big song. It's called Never. Um, did they give you a link to the album? Have you heard it? Yes, I have. Yeah. But it's not out yet. So only a few people have heard it, you know, that I'm talking to. And Never was such a big piece of music. And it was halfway kind of finished writing-wise, not a lot else done to it that right. I couldn't put it on the rules of change. It was just too much. So I said, if I can write seven songs that I think are worthy of this album and that Keith would be proud to be a part of, because he's not here, um, then I'll finish Never. I got the seven songs done. And with the, like with the last album, something, you know, if you want to say it's Keith's spirit guiding, whatever it is, you know, something guided me. I think my friendship with him, being in a band with him, recording with him, writing with him and Carl, um, they were my heroes when I was young playing in a progressive rock cover band. So I absorbed everything and I'm capable of playing keyboards. So I understood what Keith did. I could never play like him unless I'm copying him, of course. But um, so I got the album together. The record company said, this is a strong follow-up. Now, the strong follow-up didn't excite me. So I had to check with a few people. And uh, there's a writer uh, named Anil Prasad who... Um, really investigated the first 3.2 album. And he said, this is more than a worthy follow-up. And my manager, Nick, in, in England said, that this is really, really good. 
you can't tell as an artist when you spend a year working on something, if it's better than the last thing, if it's junk, if it's going to be, you know, you know what I mean? It's just hard. Yeah, it's interesting you, you say that because um, it, it's something that I was curious about because back when three was released, the Power of Three album, um, it was at a weird time for progressive rock musicians because they were, they were starting to do shorter compositions. Um, they were starting to be more concise in what they were saying at the time. And so that created a backlash, uh, you know, yeah. from their, their current followers. And then the new followers didn't care for them because they were these prog rock dinosaurs. So it was a kind <laughs> right. of a weird time. <laughs> and, and what's funny with my band three, Carl Palmer, was in Asia that sort of blazed the trail for that, right? Mm -hmm. They were yeah. doing songs with little progressive elements in it, and people loved it because there were four huge names in that band. So it was okay for Carl to do three. No, I never criticized Carl. But Keith had never done that. It was always the nice and ELP, this crazy mad scientist playing the most incredible keyboards you ever heard. They only a couple guys sent letters telling him how much they, they thought he was ruining his legacy. One even said on the for the tour, we had two female backgrounds singers that um you're ruining your, your career and how how dare you have scantily clad female background singers in the band i'm thinking well i've played to prog audiences none of the guys i know are going to say complain about that although they right. weren't scantily clad you know so i'm going <laughs> they were just really down on keith doing anything but elp which i understood i wasn't greg lake but i was a huge greg lake fan so when they said that to me I go, yeah i get it i'd like to see greg too maybe he could join <laughs> yeah when you look back at three and and how it was received critically and 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 you know how it, it uh i mean it made the the top 100 albums but didn't get very high do you yeah. do you think that it because i mean this surprised me because i came to that album later like i didn't i did i wasn't like right there when it was uh when it was released i found it like probably 10 years after it was released and i was surprised to find that that people had had criticized it i mean it was the, the music was good the, the you know the vocals everything was like it was a good album. And, and so I'm wondering if it was just, do you think the timing was wrong for that band, uh, you know, in, in 1988? Uh, and, and do you think that because Frontiers was so interested in it, do you think that that's sort of the case that it was, it was just a bad fit for the time and that the songs actually hold up better now? I found that a few countries like Italy love the album completely. Um, what we didn't do was make it more palatable for the ELP fans, which was our launching point. We had to start somewhere and we weren't gonna start with a new, you know, we had a talking about one to number seven, actually, you know, we always say number nine, we actually got to the number seven uh, on the, at the top 10, which was really great, but that was the new audience that, that did that. And we needed to get our foundation with the, the ELP, yes, Genesis, all those people that like progressive rock. And we only really had Desi La Vida, and talking about was kind of like Asia. It had those progressive elements in it. Maybe Lover to Lover did. But the rest of it was, you know, we had a song by Sue Schifrin, who was in the band for a week. Uh, Keith was working with writing songs with her. A song called Chains, which is a great song for Tina Turner. And I love singing it way up there. It's a really great song. But it was totally so wrong for that fan base that we wanted to use for our foundation. Some of my songs that Geffen was grooming me to be this Brian Adams meets Sting kind of guy, like a straight rock guy with progressive sort of creative elements, Runaway. It's, it's a favorite of mine, but totally wrong for three. Um, do or don't. Um, I love doing that acoustically, but it really wasn't right for three, you know, not to start with. 
when I got to the rule has rules have changed and I got Keith on board, we spent many hours talking about where we went wrong, what we thought we should have done then. So let's use that for our foundation and how are we going to push this into the future? And I, I believe that that's why the rules of change did so well because people felt us honoring Keith's path and my past too, and the three past, but moving it, you know, a little tougher on the rhythms. Um, and of course now with third impression, I'm left alone to do this one song with Keith, totally honoring all that that we have planned and, and decided to do, but also saying, okay, well, there'll never be another album I can do with Keith. This is the last three album. And how am I going to move my fan base, which is part progressive and part AOR to where I might go on my next album. So it, I don't want to make it sound too calculated, but all that needs to happen within um, like our heart and soul, what pours out naturally. So I, I can't just leave progressive behind. There's no way that I could do a, what Geffen was trying to do to make me Brian Adams, you know, <laughs> it's yeah, not going to happen. I mean, it, I mean, once something's musically in your, in your DNA, you know, you, you don't take that out. So, uh, but I'm, well, I'm curious as, do. yeah, that's they true. Do and they, lose their, <laughs> they lose their base. They lose their foundation and yeah. their careers go, boop, you know, so was for when three transitioned into 3.2 was were there discussions with Carl was Carl just always out No he he wasn't um Carl was approached about it and he told me look I don't have time I'm totally dedicated to the ELP legacy but if they pay me this much <laughs> like one of the things that Carl said to me when I first joined the band way back in 87 and I said, wow, this is just fantastic. I can't wait to, to make this music happen. And he goes, and don't be afraid to make a small profit. <laughs> we stuck in my, it's the funniest thing. Do not be afraid to make a small profit. And he's been very successful for, I'll, I'll say just a drummer. And you know, he's way more than that, right? He is such a great businessman, motivating, um, great at arranging the whole thing, but he knows how to make money at it. More than Greg and Keith did. I mean, Carl did really well with all the stuff he did. And he just the drummer, right? Not yeah. the songwriter. Um, so he asked for so much money. I said, well, I'll ask him, Carl. But, you know, that's that's more than Keith's getting. And he's getting a lot. Mm -hmm. And only do then he said, I only do three songs. But I'll forget. I'm not going to even ask him. <laughs> he just, he was, you know, he's still dedicated to the ELP legacy. I get it. I think he should be. He's the only one left. He's got all the parts you know uh his guitar player paul's incredible simon's incredible it's such a great band i every time they hear he calls me i go see him but also funny enough keith wanted to use simon phillips and it wasn't because the last name was a p <laughs> palmer <laughs> phillips right. but we both said we want the rhythm of this album to be really strong wanted to be a tougher bottom end on it than three was and 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 straighter in a way with the the counterpoint on top of it so in Keith's mind, uh, he wasn't going to do the album with Carl. It was me that wanted to get the original beauty of the whole thing back together, you know. Right. It would be easy to say, well, you know, Carl asked for so much money. But, I mean, Carl would have to put something else on hold to do this. So it had to be worth his yeah. while anyway. So, uh, yeah, no, so I, it's understandable. Yeah, it, I totally got it. I said, oh, I get it, Carl. I mean, he, he's – and he – who plays more than Carl Palmer shows? I mean, my right. God, he's playing all the time everywhere. Carl, I know you don't need the money. He goes, this is what I do. I love to play. 
And it, the clubs are smaller and smaller that he's playing. You know, he's like right in your face now, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. You sit there, you watch him. That's what I got to see on the three tour where, you know, usually a band would go in the dressing room during the drum solo. I would either sit side stage or up in the catwalk above the, the arenas and stuff and watch every night his, his drum solo in amazement. It blew me away. You know, I'm, I'm a huge Carl Palmer fan. So I was disappointed, but right. He's so busy. So the second, uh, the second album came out, it's 3.2. Um, Keith yes. has passed away. You, you had, you had compositions from Keith. You had, you had some playing, uh, I guess, some recordings from Keith. I had six songs. I mean, they were, mm-hmm. his parts were created. They were played. Um, he, he had to send them to me, of course. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had one song, um, and I forget which one it is now, that I had stuff from 1987 that we didn't use. You know, I made a new song out of it. But it was him from back then. And, you know, I haven't talked about that before because I, I had to replace the, the state said, first of all, there's a big battle about me even getting to do the album. I said, well, Keith and I agreed to do it. We're, I'm doing it. And I told his son, hey, hey I'm going to deliver it. He goes, oh, you know, the, the state board's not going to let you do that. I said, what? He goes, I don't know what to tell you. It, it wasn't Aaron stopping me, but they have this board, you know, that wants to guide Keith's career. Yeah. So I contacted them and they said, no, we, we want him remembered as a composer. We don't want him remembered as a band member or doing anything else. So I thought, really, a composer? the guy that's put knives in the organ and threw it on his back on top of him. And <laughs> the only real showman in keyboards, right. That did that. Nobody's ever done anything with keyboards, but Keith, I said, I don't think the writer's going to fly, you know, or the composer, it's going to have to be the whole thing. So they wouldn't let me do it. So I said, finally, I said, okay, well, you know what I'm going to do since you don't know what I have of his and what he did. And you can't get it from me. Cause I'm not going to send you the files. I'm just going to go ahead and release it in my name. We'll just forget Keith. There'll be no money for the state, no money for his kids, nothing. I'm just going to put it out. What do you think about that? I'm not a a jerk like that, but I was so, I I didn't want to do it for a year. Then I spent a year doing it. It was a lot of invested time and emotion. And they got back to me the next day. Okay. All right. All right. You can't use his playing, but you can use the the parts and everything. You'll have to replay it. And of course they're thinking I wasn't capable because I'm no Keith Emerson on the keyboards, but, (laughs) <laughs> I had eight years of classical piano, two years of jazz, was a keyboard prog player in my first band, played keyboards on stage with Keith. Nobody, he never needed me, the core, another keyboard player, but I got to. Mm-hmm. And so I set out, I have, me and my MC behind me, I mean, see the, the Moogs back there, yeah. uh, Korg Oasis. I have all the stuff that he had. So I set about doing it and it took me some time. I'm capable, I'm no Keith Emerson. And when it was done, that's why I say I checked it with Anil Prasad, this, this well-known writer. He came down here side by side and he just sat there. He goes, I can't believe that's not Keith playing. I said, well, it's like a Xerox machine, you know, copy machine. You yeah. put a picture in, you copy it. It's a copy. It's not the real thing, but it's still what he made up, you know, and that's what it took for me to do it. Yeah, I would I would agree with him, his assessment. I mean, it definitely has that Keith Emerson flavor to it. So, uh, you know, I, I think that you were able to pull it off on the, the second album. And then on the third album, when you, um, when you put these songs together, you, you mentioned never, and that's the, the, the long track at the end of the album, the closer, did you set out with a, with something in mind in, in terms of keeping things consistent to the, the 3.2 sort of blueprint? I set out to do half of it that way. <laughs> and, 
the thing for me was that I'm not going to put another three album without Keith. I mean, there, there, it can't just be me. That's a solo album. It, it just can't be. It has right. to have something to do with what we did together and um, the parameters, the plan we had. We really had laid it out. But, you know, figure what we did that wasn't right in 1987, 88. We had 27 years to think about that. And, of course, we grew and Keith tried a lot of things. I mean, I, I always say I, I wish he would have moved back to England because I don't think um, California knows how to treat the king of creating uh, great stuff. We're more flavor of the month kind of country. And Europe is very artistic. They get it. And he would have thrived there. And here, it was tough for him, you know. But I followed all the parameters on half the song that we had laid out. But of course, they still had to come out naturally. But like on the first album, I was half the songwriter and the voice. Keith was half the songwriter and the sound. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I, I, that's not to belittle Carl saying he's just a drummer because he was a very motivating force, but he didn't write and he didn't, the, the lyrics, he, you know, and the, the singing and stuff. The part that really made the sound of three was Keith and I. So I felt some ownership in that sound and that style because it did come naturally to me. You know, I started a progressive band and Geffen was trying to get me out of that. You know, getting me the Brian, I always say the Brian Adams thing. They're trying to focus me into that. And which is, is great. I, I love it. But my roots and what I love to do is more artistic and more progressive, you know. Right. So you, you said uh, without, you know, without Keith's involvement, there could be no three. So is this definitively the last 3.2 project? Yeah, it's when we got back together to do the second album it was not only the second album 3.2 but it was only two guys doing it well keith said i want to use simon phillips a good friend of mine but let's get it all done before we add him in he's mm -hmm. genius cool okay well, i'm fine with that you know i can uh, do things to a click track you know i play drums so i can you know do some some stuff but we need something to earmark where accents and things are and now with this last song of, of Keith and I's of Never, that's it. I, I don't have, you know, I've got two measures from a live thing here that, you know, no one's ever, I don't have anything um, that Keith and I work together on. And if I can't work together with them, then I don't feel it's an honest effort of, of three albums. So there's mm -hmm. three albums to the three legacy. Two of them are 3.2 because only two of us did them. Right. And I, I, just, I can't do anymore. Yeah. So uh, everything we hear on third impression is is you. Everything we hear. Yep, I had to do the same thing on Never. I had to replace all of Keith's keyboard parts. But when you get to the middle and that solo section, especially I me, mean, there's a lot of Keith in there. But the stuff that really stands out is right in the middle, and it's just so him. That of course I think that really seems like he played that. You know, he wrote it. Sounds like he's playing it. Again, I copied painstakingly the sounds, um, you know, with, with digital stuff, if I was a little bit off on a note, I can move it. I don't mean the yeah. pitch. I mean, I played the parts, but if it just wasn't the same articulation, I could just move it over with the mouse, you know? Yeah. So it really isn't a, a Xerox copy of his stuff on there. Tell me a little bit about, about the song. So, you know, did some of these come together easier than others? You know, Tell me a little bit about the song by song process for you. You know, when I, when Frontiers was trying to get me to do it and I had the one song I didn't use, I thought 
there, there's no way. I'm just not, I'm not ready. I don't have anything. You know, I figured the rules of change was it. That was a tribute to you know, the band, to Keith, uh, lyrically and everything. It's all about my relationship and time with him. And they really, you know, they just said, not many albums are this successful right now. You really have to take it to heart and give it a try. And mm-hmm. I started writing and A Fond Farewell, which was the first single release, is one of the first ones. And like with the last album, and, and I, I don't, I'm not a guy, I'm, I don't believe in the psychic powers and then pine the sky, oh my God, the cloud looks like Jesus. I'm not that guy, you know? Yeah. I'm more of a realist. I take a lot of chances but I've always felt like either it's the time I spent with Keith or it's his aura, whatever, in influencing me and sort of driving me without it being calculated. The songs just come out and the lyrics just come out. And I found that even though it took six months to write the seven songs I, I had to do before I started working on uh, Never Again, uh, it wasn't a struggle what was the struggle was getting the special parts in them, you know, the song and the pieces that came together that, yeah, that, that could fit on a three album, but it needed to have those special parts. That's what Keith always supplied. Those special things that were just like, Oh my God, listen to that, that, that thing he's playing and leading into this or the solo here that took a little time because I needed to insert some more uh, cleverness. <laughs> so let's call it. Yeah. But um, the process wasn't difficult it just took time and of course you know i'm thinking i don't have any right to do a third album you know um people are gonna criticize me they didn't on the first one and i I, i'm so thankful for that they're gonna go oh he's doing another album just for the hell of it that was always hanging over my head because i wasn't going to release this album unless a couple people my manager anil prasad um frontier said no, that's a worthy follow-up. You really should do it. Because it's hard to tell for an artist what you got when you're done, I think. Yeah. This is not a question I probably could have asked 10 years ago or, or even five years ago. But it, this it, is this going to be a physical release or digital only? Frontiers usually puts out CDs. I'll, I'll tell you the good news of Frontiers. Um, they've been kind of a metal hard rock label for a long time. Mm-hmm. They put out a solo album of mine um, 15 years ago now. It was a little more like an Asia kind of album, but it was fairly AOR. Um, they put out the 3.2 and they realized that progressive music fans or people outside of the rock realm that like more creative kind of music, like a booklet and they like a CD and they want to have a physical thing to put in their shelf. And right. then they, they want to read through it. They don't want to look on, you know, even though they're more technical in a lot of ways, progressive fans as far as, you know, online and all the websites and all that stuff, they want to have that physical thing. So Frontiers has decided to get more into progressive music. And my manager actually has some other, he manages a big, big train. And if you've very heard of them, band. they're mm-hmm. yeah, very good band. And uh, they're trying to get big, big train, but they're, they're not sure what they want to do because they have their own thing going. But other prog bands are now um, on the Frontiers label because of basically the question and the answer of yes the physical cd is important to prog fans and and music fans in general instead of flavor of the month like i accuse the u.s of doing the prog fans here like the i mean i did a vinyl on the rules of change frontiers wasn't going to do it and i said i'd like to write to do it myself i want to 
go to my mastering guy, watch them cut the grooves. I'll have the album covers printed. I'll get special resealable sleeves. Uh, I'm going to put a picture. I have a pick that has the first album cover and the second album cover on the side. I stick it thing outside. I sign them. And my wife and I put them all together and mail them out. I said, it's that important to me that this honors the memory of everything involved that way. And they let me do it. I, I can't right. afford to do it this time. Oh, boy, that's an expensive proposition. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, was all this recorded in your home studio or did you go somewhere to record it? You know, uh, uh, if I can show you quick, I don't have a home studio. I'll, uh, all right. Let me get this out of here. I got this nice holder here for my, okay. my okay. iPad, but um, this is Pro Tools. This yeah. is Pro Tools yeah. HDX or something they call it. This is a very old Neve console. Neve is the best you can get in the world. And a lot of tube gear, um, the old two inches there, you know, some of the amps I use. And the fun part, here is, these are the guitars I use every day for sessions. Oh, this is great. I have one everything I need sound-wise. There's the mic. That's a, a Telefunken C12. It's a $10,000 microphone. I bought that specifically for the rules of change because I I did every, I had the Moog rebuilt, everything. So Keith and I had the best of everything. This is the real thing you see out there's the main room out there. There's the drum set. Yeah. You know, and the vocal booths over there. This is about I don't know, a thousand square feet, twelve hundred square feet of studio here. It's, and where is this? It's in Campbell, California, which is Right in the center of San Jose, kind of, we, we're, it, you'll love this. If you go half a mile that way, it's Netflix, where Netflix started. <laughs> if you go six blocks that way, that's where eBay is. If, you know, Google, Apple is uh, a mile. And Apple has so many buildings, you can't believe it. And of course, they have the big spaceship now, you know, that yeah. they built. Um, everything came from here and because of the politics, everything's leaving here now because they can't afford the taxes, but they're saying like Tesla, Tesla's uh, five miles down the road. The, the factory that builds, I think they're building that new truck now, but Elon is going to take it to Texas, the, the corporate part, because our taxes are so high. They make it so hard on business. It's an, it's incredible what they do. And I, I kind of don't understand it because we're the seventh largest economy in the world in California. Hmm. How does that happen? You know, but anyway, um, so I'm right here in the center of all that. And it doesn't make for the greatest music scene anymore, but it was, you know, especially in the 60s before my time, San Francisco, all the Grateful Dead and everybody actually came from San Jose. Doobie Brothers, Santa Cruz, you know, 10 minutes away. Uh, Moby Grape, uh, all these bands, they, we're San Jose people. I don't know if you have to go or not, um, what your schedule is like today, but I wanted to make sure that I don't want wanted... 12. Okay. Yeah, I, I, they're supposed to be half hours yesterday. They run, run me ragged, but they gave you an hour for, if you need it for okay. some reason, you must be a special guy. I'm, I am. <laughs> yes. I'm, there's no one more important than me in the, in the music media <laughs> field. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I wanted to get, I wanted to get your thoughts on if you if you want the listener to take anything away from this new album that comes out February 12th, um, yeah. what would it be? What, what do you want the end listener when they put on the CD and they turn out the lights and they crank it up? 
What do you want them to take from this? There's a few things that bother me with progressive music, and that's a lot of it rambles on. There's nothing to hang on to. The Great Plane, you know, I thought like I love Dream Theater, but after 10 minutes on a 30 minute song, I've had enough. <laughs> and Jordan, I know Jordan. I mean, all of them, they're so good, but it goes on and on and on. And it's, you know, blazing away for blazing away's sake. What I try to do is not only have meanings to a song that are positive, kind of uh, thought provoking in a positive way, but, you know, the, the AOR part of my progressive is to put a chorus in there that's memorable. Mm -hmm. So I think, I don't know what they would take away, except for that. Um, I hope they can remember the album and they enjoy the lyrics and the story uh, along with the plane. That, that's a, I've never been asked that question before, you know, um, to think about that. Interesting. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I do hope they enjoy it. I, I wish I could get more people from the yes and Genesis camps on this because I think they would like the sound and the style because both yes and Genesis had a little more, I, won't, I don't want to call it compact, but they had that memorable chorus or hook line or something more yeah. than let's say ELP did, except for the Greg Lake songs, you know? Right. And I wish I could get them involved in this a little bit more and listening to it. Because um, my end game, me personally, is that enough people like it where I can do another tour, which I did 2019. We were supposed to be in Europe last year, but of course, you know what happened last year. Yeah, I don't think there was a last year, was it? <laughs> I think last year lasted about 32 years. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, it lasted two months, right? Because yeah. it wasn't until March that it got canceled. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's that's my hope is enough people like it. And, you know, when I did the tour in 2019, we did 27 cities. And a lot of people came out that liked the Magna Carta tribute series, you know, Roundabout and Watch mm -hmm. of the Sky, the ones I rearranged. A Carnival Night, I did with Jordan Rudis and Simon Phillips. And it's, it's an incredible version. They came out to see that, came out to hear some of the solo songs, the three songs, 3.2, and some of my stuff when I was with Steve Howe and GTR. But I would walk out to the edge of the stage before anything started every night and thank them because I make a living in music. I don't know any of my friends that have done that, right? Not from this town. And I'm so thankful for it. And I'm hoping I can get out there again. You know, I want to get down Florida, Texas. And then, and then you know, we did West Coast, East Coast. We got to get down to Florida, definitely. I, I had a, a great friend there who died recently that I really wanted to get to Florida. But he came to uh, Missouri to see us. So that was good. But I want to go out and I want to thank everybody and, and continue playing the history that I've been involved in because I've been really lucky. I mean, uh -huh, that happened. I'm from San Jose, California. I should be a computer geek, right? Right. How did you get involved with the Greg Kin Band? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Greg has a had a radio show for 18 years here. Um, it was the greatest show we've ever had in town because he played with everybody. He was Bill Graham's boy, right? He was his right hand man. Hey, Greg, if uh, some if the Stones were playing up in Seattle, like you will say, yeah, and, uh, Thin Lizzy canceled, they couldn't make it, and uh, he would call and say, uh, Greg, uh, Bill Graham, hey, Greg, Bill, hey, can you guys get to uh, Seattle tomorrow morning and open for the Stones? Yeah, yeah, we'll be there. Yeah. Like it was no big deal. Yeah, he got to do. <laughs> 
everything. He, he even got cigarettes from Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and stuff. He has a whole stuff, but he has all these stories. They're so incredible. And this radio show was really good. And him and his sidekick were sort of Republican, Democrat, They just mildly a little bit. So they bicker a little bit about things. It was just a great show. Mm-hmm. And his bass player died. He, his bass player, Steve, um, did a lot of drugs, was kind of a wild guy. And he had a stroke and I replaced him while he was still alive. And the bass player was the Joe Satriani of the band. He was, man, he played a lot of stuff. And I, he goes, man, you, you we couldn't talk. You're, you're the guy, man. You, you took the blitz. I said, no, Steve, you're killing me with your parts. I'm trying to learn this stuff, man. It's, it's really tough. No, you're the man. You're the... <laughs> Greg called me on the radio when Steve had the stroke and said, I need a guy, man. I, I hear you just left Ambrosia. Are you uh, available? I thought after Ambrosia, my career was was done because I tried for two years to get them to do a new album. They weren't ready. They wouldn't do it, whatever it is. They still haven't done one. <laughs> That's been 94 or something. Um, yeah, later than that, 2002, I don't know. But um, I said, wow, that'd be cool. And how easy to play Greg's music. It's so simple. And now we have a great friendship. Every Thursday morning at 11 o'clock, Greg walks in this door. We spend four hours working on writing songs together. And um, he's a really entertaining, fun guy. So it's it um, takes care of that Brian Adams piece that Geffen wanted me to do. Like, Greg, I can do that with Greg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do, do you still does do still do all the old standards? You're still doing the breakup song and the uh, and the, the Jeopardy and all that. Yeah, you know, one of the greatest things I get to do with Greg is when we go out on his story storyteller show, which is a duo. And we did an East Coast tour with that. We didn't get down to Florida, though. Um, but he'll talk between every song about you know Mick Jagger cigarettes or Bill Graham or, I mean, so many things. And just the two of us on acoustic guitar um, do this, this show that is one of my favorite things to do. He's, he's just so good at talking to people. Of course, the radio show for 18 years helped that. But yeah, breakup song. Of course, everybody sings along with that. How can you not? Jeopardy talks about Weird Al. He put his uh, son and his daughter through college on the royalties from Weird Al doing I Lost in Jeopardy. You That's know? great. Um, yeah, no, it's, he's a really good guy. Yeah. Good. Uh, I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to go back to, to 3.2, third impression. I, I know it's a little bit like asking you, you know, asking someone who their favorite you know, which of their children is their favorite. Do you have, do you have a favorite song other than the one that, that Keith worked on uh, back in the day? You know, I have to say, um, the one, a, a song that's important to me, of course, was the single that just put out, A Bond of Union. I lost my mom two years ago and I wrote that for her, but, you know, she was really sick and, and there was no funeral for her. We just had a little service. There was no way I could sing this song. This or, it just didn't work out. And so I wanted to honor her. Um, so I, I worked it up for this album. And there's an acoustic version on the Japanese release, which is the actual version that I wrote for her. Cause I changed a few words for this to make it more about your parents and everybody, you know, raised by either a good or a bad parent. It still made us who we are today, basically with that song. They sacrificed something to, to do that. That's an important song to me. The other one, the very first song, I set out to do something 
I thought was sort of Celtic with acoustic guitar in the beginning and take it into a heavy song. And I wanted it to be first on the album because I thought anybody that's listening to three and you know wants to hear that sound is gonna go, what? Celtic guitar, acoustic guitar in the beginning of this? And then it's powerful. And I'm trying to show them where I might head without them getting to never the last song and uh, fond farewell and stuff, the more Emerson three stuff. So they kind of have to listen past that one day, right? <laughs> and I've got some great response on that song. So it's sort of a favorite of mine just because I was worried they would turn people off, but I had to take that chance. So, okay. yeah, but you know, Devil of Liverpool, I love Devil of Liverpool. <laughs> we, when I did a press tour two years ago in, in London, the, the agent had all these people come in. I needed a break. I was talking to so many people that my wife and I decided to take a taxi cab a Beatles tour. Let's just do something mundane. Something to do. The Beatles tour. Huge Beatles fan because you saw a lot of Vox guitars. I have Vox amps and stuff. My dad had the Vox store here in San Jose when I was really little. So it means something to me that besides the music. We went on this tour and this guy actually grew up. He's this old guy driving, grew up with George Harrison. And he started telling me about this scoundrel way before his time that was a loan shark called the devil of liverpool because he was just talking about life he wasn't talking about the beatles tour we got to see a few things yeah. but oh you know and over here you know we used to see george over here at this candy store oh cool you know and the devil of liverpool was something i thought oh i gotta get home that sounds like a song and i researched it i couldn't find anything i mean a couple things about the guy but the story really came from the guy in the taxi cab there's so many cool things that happen to you in life that you can write songs out of, but you have to identify them, you know, like, like I'm talking about your background being a little bit, a little bit pale. You could have used a few more colors than that. I don't know what that is. That a, is that a three? What is that? <laughs> it's a 3.2 actually. That's um, right. Yeah. No, the, I mean, the devil of Liverpool was when I read the song titles before I even uh, listened to the, the tracks was one that stood out to me. And I wondered about that one because it's, it's such a great phrase. Well, it see it caught you the same way it did when the guy said it to me. I'm like, oh, what was that? <laughs> I put it in my phone. Yeah, like, yeah that's the one you write. that's the one you jot down in your notebook right away. <laughs> yes, exactly. I would have forgot that. You know, that's just me. So I have so I have ideas all the time. But the problem with having ideas all the time is they go just as quick as they come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh yeah, they're, they're especially when you when you wake up thinking of something. If you don't write it down immediately, you know, you'll, I'll, I'll get to it. And then before you're even out of the shower, you don't even know what that was anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I think I, I have a lot of songwriters. I, a lot of what I do here, so I do play a lot of instruments. I, I work with single people, singer songwriters. They came in, I arrange, um, I play the instruments that they don't play. And then you do their vocal with my vocal producer here, Tom Duell, who does a fantastic job of them. And it's a thousand dollars to get your song done. It's not that much money, but it's like, well, you've heard my stuff. The quality is the highest with the Neve console and everything. And I always tell them, I said, you know, you have two sides of your brain. You have the creative side and the analytical side. Most people, the switch doesn't go like this. And that's kind of like when you wake up, it's, it's, you're disarmed. So your creative side's thinking something, but as soon as you get analytical, that side's gone, you know, <laughs> shuts it right down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, I have enjoyed our conversation, Robert. I, I really appreciate your time. I hope that this uh, third impression album does very well for you. And, um, you know, maybe we'll we'll have you back on after it's been out. And maybe you've gotten a chance to go out and play some of these songs live and and oh. um, would love to talk to you again. 
Well, I, I, I've enjoyed the time and I definitely will talk to you when uh, you have time to do it. I'm doing so many interviews and <laughs> luckily, luckily, everybody's saying that they like the album because, you know, for me, I'm like, okay, what's going to happen now? It's going to be out the 12th, you know, and what are people going to think? They're, uh, the response has been interesting. Half of the interview, I've done 20 now, half of them. Uh, say they like it better than the rules of change, which I didn't think was possible because that was a, sort of a tortured album for me with what happened right mm -hmm. in the middle of it. So um, I'm feeling pretty good about it. I can't wait to go play some of the songs too live. So I appreciate yeah. your time. Excellent. My pleasure. And, and like I said, if anybody that that liked the previous 3.2 album uh, will like this and, and yeah, I could definitely see um, a good deal of that audience uh, preferring the new one. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, the songs are catchy. The the songs are, I think, kind of. I think you achieved what you set out to achieve. From what I, you know, from yeah, the half, few listens that I've had, is, half of it's a little bit like my time in GTR. I've sort of morphed the three and the GTR thing together to bet to maybe be what I do next, kind of. You know, so mm -hmm. well, I'm, that's why I'm interested to see what people think. There's a lot more guitar in this album. Yeah. So um, I'm assuming it'll be on all of the streaming services and people can get it on Amazon and everything. Uh, yeah. So uh, third impression by 3.2. Robert Berry, thanks again for your time. And uh, you do make it to Florida. I promise I'll come see you. We got to make it to Florida when it's not humid, though. So when is that? <laughs> uh, maybe, we'll, maybe, we'll, uh, maybe we'll go when it's humid. <laughs> two weeks in two weeks in January. I think maybe it's not that humid. <laughs> Oh, we'll see you in Jan next January then. That's right. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks right. a lot. All right. Take care. Michael's Record Collection is hosted and produced by Michael Citro. Logo graphic courtesy of Jerry Cutchins. Follow Michael's Record Collection on social media at Mike's Records on Twitter Michael's Record Collection on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. For the free newsletter version, subscribe at substack.com and just type Michael's Record Collection into the search bar. Thanks for listening. <laughs>